I've been thinking a lot about sex lately. Okay, not like that. But I have been thinking about how much sex has changed for me over the years. Like the way I used to have sex just doesn't really work for me anymore. And the things that used to turn me on just really don't. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this experience. Because between getting married to having kids, taking on responsibilities of adulthood, these things really change sexuality. So how do we have good sex again? How do we feel sexy again? How do we reconnect to that part of ourselves? And you know what? What if it's not sexuality that we need to be talking about? What if it's something else? What if it's sensuality? I'm Valeria, and if you feel lost when it comes to sensuality, you are not alone. I feel like for a lot of us, honest conversations about sex are scary. But I think the only way through this is to truly understand it. So today I'm talking to two women who spend their entire careers thinking about this stuff. Later, we'll hear from Dr. Emily Nagalski, who's a sex educator, researcher, speaker, and writer. But first up is Shan Budrim. When I started researching this episode, I immediately thought of Shan. She is a certified sexologist, published author, and fellow podcaster. And she does not just talk about sex and orgasm and like the five sex positions that are going to change your life. Physical intimacy is part of her work, But Chan also studies emotional intimacy, relationships, and connection. So when I sat down with Chan for an interview, I told her all about how much my sexuality and sex drive has changed over the years. And she was quick to assure me that this happens to everyone. What ends up happening when we're in romantic relationships is... Normally, when we first meet somebody that we experience primary sexual attraction to and that we just have like this visceral draw towards this person, we don't really have to do a lot to be sexual or to get engaged in like an act or desire to get into a a phase or of arousal. You got to see that person and then things just go. But as love naturally transitions from passionate to companionate, all of a sudden, that wonderful chemical cocktail that made it so easy for us to get into those spaces with someone else, it shuts off. And for some people, it's like a faucet and some people it turns down to a drip. But nonetheless, a lot of people then look at their partner and they're like, well, maybe it's over, right? Maybe I'm not attracted to anymore. Maybe the magic is done. And that's not the case at all. You could be with somebody who you are incredibly drawn to and you are incredibly connected to, but just naturally by virtue of the way that our brains work, you're going to feel this drop off of desire for them. It happens, right? In the beginning of a relationship, biology is truly doing all the work for you. Feeling sexual and turned on just comes so naturally when you see that person. It's like the plane flies on autopilot. But as time goes on and that chemical cocktail changes, evoking sexuality becomes a bit more of a manual process. So how do we tap into that? How do we take control of that desire? And I think for me, as I get older, it gets simplified that I used to make it this big thing that felt like I had to strive to get there. 
I did a series years ago called Sensual Self, which was me striving towards becoming sensual. But now I'm like, to me, to be sensual is literal. It is to engage in your senses. Most of us have five of them. Some of us magically may have 12 or 15, depending on how in touch you are with the universe and your soul and everything else. But to just be in, in the act of being mindful in one or all of the five senses. So if I'm eating a really great meal and I'm savoring the taste, that's a sensual moment. If I hear music that is wonderful to me and I'm giving myself a moment just to be present and engaged in the music, like that's a sensual moment. If I'm being stroked sexually and it feels really good and I'm engaging in touch, it's a sensual moment. If I'm walking in the forest and I notice the way that a tree feels against my skin, that's a sensual moment. So there's definitely crossovers with sexuality and sensuality, but sensuality doesn't necessarily have to be sexual. When I was thinking about this episode and I was thinking about sensuality, I find that I cannot be a sexual person if my sensuality is not activated, like if I'm not actively in it. And it makes sense, the definition you gave earlier, where it's truly just, you know, all your senses are on, right? You're present, you experience it, and you kind of give in into all these senses. And for me, it's uh, from the longest time when I was trying to figure out how do I become more sexual with what was available in front of me information-wise, I didn't really have any answers. But right now I find that that's my go-to. Whenever I feel like I need to reconnect to my sexuality, I have to go through my sensuality. Is that something that you find around like with people from your conversations? I know that I'm trying to make it a more concrete formula over here, but just curious if it's something that you see that's happening. Absolutely, and I love a formula. I love concreteness, I love clarity. I think in the space of sex, love, relationships, dating, sexuality, there is so much ambiguity. And I think that people can look at that as a way to say, well, there's no way to figure it out because there's so much gray. But instead, it's a matter of finding your shade on the map. You're one of 50 shades of gray. Um, so it's less about like, well, there's no way to understand it because it's also broad. And instead, it's an invitation for each person to really deep dive and ask themselves the question to find what their unique pinpoint is on, again, this, this wide map of possibilities. It seems to me like a lot of us need to find what arouses our own sensuality before we can reignite our sexuality. Shan developed this thing called turn-on triggers. It is basically a quiz for helping you figure out what exactly gets you turned on. You know, when all the chemicals in our brain stop working for us automatically, these turn-on triggers can really help us understand how we can tap into our sensuality and sexuality manually. So now we have to be a lot more intentional and mindful about creating opportunities for us to have those moments together and acknowledging that not everybody gets there the exact same way. So what you just described to me is an environmental person. And that is someone who does need to be engaged through a sensory experience. So for them, having sex or making out with somebody on a pile of dirty laundry is like nails on a chalkboard. It's about creating a space for the body to feel present, the body to feel good and relaxed and settled before any other opportunity opens up. I'm not like that per se. I actually struggle with mindfulness quite a bit where I can always be five minutes ahead or five days ahead or five years ahead in my brain. So sometimes sexuality is actually my pathway to being present. 
Like it's not until I engage in sex, I'm like, oh yeah, my body, this moment, the mm. feeling. And so for me, my turn on trigger is desire. It's when my partner expresses like a deep need for me in a really raunchy way usually, um, is dirty talk <laughs> on the fly. That activates me to get into my body and to get into the moment. Interesting. Do many people require a sensual experience or a sensual awakening before feeling sexual? I, I think the answer is a pretty safe yes. But I know for me, being present in my body is really only one of the things I have to deal with. When it comes to desire, the real obstacle is my head. This is where Dr. Emily Nagaski comes in. She is a sex educator, researcher, and neuropsychologist. So she has spent her entire career educating people about how their bodies and brains work together to make sex happen. I asked her to lay out some basics for me. Can you define sensuality and sexuality for us? Nope. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So it's like the question, like, what is sex? What is yeah. sexuality? Everyone's answer is different and no one's answer is wrong. Broadly speaking, when people bring me to talk about sexuality, they want me to be talking about uh, mostly clothes off, like genitals are going to be involved. I think that might be the primary thing that people expect me to talk about when they bring me in to talk about sexualities. Like the genitals are going to be part of this conversation. With sensuality, the genitals may or may not be involved, but it's going to be a broader conversation about the senses, as the word sensuality suggests. I think the thing that ties them both together is awareness of pleasure what feels good, and under what circumstances does it feel good, and under what circumstances does maybe even the exact same sensation not feel good. And as I get older, I understand that actual like sexuality and sex is not so interesting to me. Hmm. And it's more like if I don't get the sensual part, then I don't need the other one either. So genitals touching all by itself is not inherently the thing that motivates you. Right. I run workshops and I ask people, what is it that you want when you want sex? And actually, the most common answer is connection. Mm. So I think a lot of people might, they might say it in different words, but they have a similar experience that it is not like the genital skins rubbing together that they want when they want sex. They want the feeling of human connection with the whole person that they're with. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I call it sensuality, but how do you present it to your clients or students when you talk about that connection or that added thing that goes into the whole experience? Yeah. So here's the interesting thing. When I hear you talking about it, my first response is that's not added. That's inherent. That is sexuality. My experience and the way I was trained about it and what I know about it is that romance, that spiritual connection is part of what sexuality is. There's no such thing as sex that is just bodies touching. That's a lie that I think people are absorbing maybe from porn. Learning about sex from watching porn is like trying to do driver's ed by watching NASCAR. Oh. <laughs> Those are professionals on a closed course with a pit crew. Right. That is not how it actually works in real life. How it works in real life is people tend to have some kind of 
relationship to each other. Even if it's like you just met a stranger off an app and you're meeting, that's a relationship. Mm. And it shapes the way you give and receive sensation with that person, which body parts you are interested in sharing with them, and the ways that you are willing to be vulnerable and authentic with them. And all of that is inherent in what sexuality is because it's a whole brain experience. It's not just about the sensation parts of it. It's not just about the physiological response. Whether or not any sensation feels good depends on what else is happening in your mind and in the external situation that you're in. So the classic example is tickling. I know tickling is not everybody's favorite, but if you're already like in a great relationship and playful and aroused and trusting and then your partner tickles you, that has the potential to feel fun and to lead to other things. But if that exact same certain special someone tries to tickle you when you're in the middle of an argument and you're real pissed off with them, that maybe doesn't feel as good. <laughs> maybe slightly feels, as one of my students put it, violence would shortly ensue. Right. It's the same sensation, right? Mm. So it's sensual, but whether or not it's pleasurable depends on the context. That is so freeing to me. I don't think I've ever considered that sensual does not necessarily mean pleasurable or sexual. So what makes sexuality good is not just like, touch me here, don't touch me that way. It's what is the context in which I'm experiencing the sensations. And part of that is your relationship. Part of that is your own mental and physical well-being. Part of that is the state of the world. Other life circumstances is the label they give it. Uh, and they're talking about like worrying about your kids and worrying about money and worrying about work and worrying about the patriarchy and white supremacy and rapidly exploitative late capitalism. Like, if you're worried about that stuff, the brain mechanism that controls sexual response is a dual control mechanism, which means it has two parts. And the first part absolutely is the accelerator, which notices all the sex-relevant information, all the sex-related stimuli. That's all the thing from your external senses, everything you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, but also everything you think, believe, or imagine, and all of your internal body experiences that your brain codes as, oh, that's sex-related, and it sends a turn-on signal that a lot of us are familiar with. And it sounds like for you, a lot of the things that activate your accelerator are not straight-up genital sensations. It's other stuff. It's the relationship. It's feeling connected, not just in your bodies, but at a soul level. And then at the same time, it's a dual control model. There are your brakes. And your brakes are <laughs> noticing all the good reasons not to be turned on right now. So the process of becoming aroused is the dual process of turning on the ons, yes, but also, and often more importantly, turning off the offs. That's a long list. Yeah, it's a long list. <laughs> so you're already thinking of things, and I'm totally sure that your things are going to be on other people's lists, too. Yeah. What did you instantly think of? Oh, my God. I mean, kids, bills, uh -huh. responsibilities, work, you know. Did the handyman come in today? Uh-huh. All the fun stuff. All the adulting that, you know, we don't get an insight into when we aspire to be adults. I love that you put it that way, that it's the adulting that gets in the way. Because, like, what's the most adult behavior humans engage in? It's sex. But also, sex is a form of play. Right. 
And it's hard to release ourselves into the experience of play, even if it's very grown-up play, when we still have this massive to-do list. having an aha moment. We forget the context of literally everything going on in our lives, which makes me wonder, is adulting killing our sexuality? Is there some way to bring back the sexual, sensual part of ourselves and do everything we need to do? I remember expressively my first pregnancy, my second pregnancy were so incredibly different in that my first pregnancy was all about fight, fight, fight. I was like, I don't want to lose my sexuality. I don't want to lose my sensuality. I don't want to lose myself. The reason I decided to have a kid is because I wanted to share me with someone small and I wanted to share the best parts of me. So the last thing I want to do is lose that in this experience, in this process. So I was like with my husband, you know, we're having sex no matter how pregnant I am four times a day, (laughs) not four times a day, but you know, four times a week. And I'm still wearing lingerie and I'm still doing this and I'm working out all the time. And I was really like, fighting against the current of my body. And I appreciated that. And the second one, I was so much more sick than I was with the first. And also I had a small child. So my capacity and my time was so limited. I just didn't have the energy for that fight anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't having sex. My sex drive was incredibly low. And I let myself go there. I let myself go into that flow. I didn't fight back and I love that. And it was really beautiful of an experience for me just to let my body take control and my feelings take control and not to judge myself. And it challenged me on my definition for self-love. It challenged my relationship like, well, how are we intimate if we're not physically intimate? It challenged so many definitions for me. And I came out of that really more deeply in love and more deeply appreciative of not just my sensual and my sexual self, but myself overall. So yes, those things have changed constantly. I think that the biggest change for me is allowing myself to still be sexual and to be still sensual, even if I'm not making the space to actively engage in them. Honestly, I am still working to get to where Shan is, and it might take a little longer than anticipated. But she does bring up an important point. We do not have to force our sexuality and sensuality from some secret, mysterious place. They are just a part of our lives without us trying. Same as bills and kids and whether or not the handyman came today, which he did not. But it is still hard work to embody that knowledge. It is a journey. Emily told me a big part of it is breaking free from certain cultural scripts about our bodies and our sexuality. All of these messages are grounded in the idea that our bodies belong to someone else, that women are the objects of men's sexual impulses rather than the subjects of their own sexual pleasure. Mm-hmm. When And it's not like people are explicitly being taught any of this. Like there's no longer a conversation in high school sex ed about whether sex work should be decriminalized in order to protect the virtuous girls. And yet that messaging, that dual, that conflicting, that double standard message is still really deeply ingrained. I have an identical twin sister 
We were raised in the same household. By the time I got to high school, my idea of what a good sexual woman was supposed to be was entirely informed by the narrative of romance novels and Glamour magazine. Right. I remember in high school reading an article about how I was not having any sex, but I was reading this article that said that when I was having sex, I should touch my own breasts and I should make a lot of noise because men really (laughs) like it when women enjoy themselves. And so when I started having sex with people, I touched my own breasts and I made a lot of noise because I was totally sure that my partner wanted to see that I was enjoying it. It had nothing to do with what I was actually experiencing, but I was performing Mm. my sexuality according to the rules that I had absorbed. And yet my identical twin sister, raised in the same household, by the time she got to high school, had absorbed the idea that a good sexual woman didn't want any sex at all. She only did it to satisfy a man. She had no sexual impulses, and any impulses she had made her a bad person. And her goodness could be defined by the extent to which she could control herself. Identical twins, raised in the same household. That is how contrary the messages are that are in the environment. Yeah, I think we grab the ones that sit better with us and our kind of developing identities. This really small individual differences from very early on Mm -hmm. result in these totally wildly different trajectories. Absolutely. And despite these little differences, there's one big lie a lot of us still believe. The lie that we should try as hard as we can to become that perfect sexual, sensual being. So what are the biggest obstacles you feel like women face when they're approaching their sensuality or sexuality? Yeah, I do think that women feel a need to audition constantly. Like audition to be good enough or to measure themselves. They're always checking in to say like, am I doing this right? Am I good enough? Why aren't I good enough? Rather than approaching things from a space of like, I'm doing the best I can and I love where I'm at. I would love tools to explore more. So rather than trying to be enough, inviting more into your life, I think is a definite positive mind switch that a lot of people could benefit from. That you are exactly perfect in this moment. You are doing 100% of what you could possibly be doing in this moment. You are enough. You are lovable. You are incredible. But more, you know, if you want more of a certain feeling or more of a certain kind of connection, that's a different kind of conversation rather than like, Mm. I'm not enough. This is not enough. How do I get to enough? You're, you're already there as is. So I do find that, yeah, the question, you know, we started this conversation kind of like, I'm on a sensual journey or I'm on a journey to connect with my sexuality. It's like, you don't have to journey there. You're there already. Okay, so apparently I am not on a journey anymore. I am here. I have arrived. I think for a lot of us, myself included, that journey will be lifelong. But so far, these are the tools I've gathered from Emily and Shan. Are you ready? It's time to take notes. Number one, learn your turn-on triggers. Number two, check things off your to-do list so you can create mental space for pleasure. And number three, experiment with practices that help you pay attention to your body. So there's a spectacular activist and organizer named Adrienne Marie Brown who has a background in sex education. She wrote a book called Pleasure Activism, and I had the opportunity to interview her for my own podcast. Mm -hmm. And she literally changed my life in that conversation. 
I, we were talking about my own struggles as a person who works from home. Like I spend all these hours in front of my computer, in my head, reading, writing, and then I leave and I go out into the world and I find it really difficult to get out of here and back into my body and into my relationship. And what you suggested for me was a gratitude for pleasure practice. So it's like a standard gratitude practice, but instead of it just being gratitude for anything at all, it's what's a specific experience of pleasure that you had today that you are thankful for? Mm. And it sounds really simple, but like at the end of each day, talk with someone, talk with your partner about a pleasure you experienced that you're grateful for. And the more you do it, I found, and I've been doing it for months now, the more you do it, the more you're looking for the moments of pleasure over the course of your day to choose as one that you are grateful for that you had. And it makes you more sensitive and aware of the pleasure that you're already experiencing, which in turn makes it easy for you actually to experience more pleasure. I absolutely love that. It's a simple thing to do. It is. Definitely takes practice, but I love that it's something that, you know, doesn't require you to stop everything you're doing in order to fit it into your life. Yeah, mostly what it looks like is like have a five minute conversation with someone you already wanted to be talking to. Okay, okay. I think I'm starting to understand how that is sensuality. Noticing and appreciating all pleasure as it naturally comes and goes. Allowing ourselves to experience it, or as Shan puts it, allowing ourselves to savor it. Is there anything, any tip, any thought that someone should keep in mind when trying to bring more sensuality into their lives? The word savoring comes to mind, savory. That's it. It's being with the moment, being with your body, being with the experience. And you pick what you tune in on. So we could do an exercise right now where if I was to savor something about right now, I'm looking at the camera and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is work. And I get to do this for a living. That's so cool. And as I look at the camera, there's also a really beautiful like king palm right behind it that's really vibrant and green. And the camera is black and this is green. I love the way black and green look together. And I'm just savoring in that moment. Visually, I'm like, this is beautiful. Like what I see in front of me, what I see of myself and what I see of my world right now is magnificent and that feels good. So that's the sensual moment. Okay, dear listener, let's do a little exercise over here. I want you to think about something you are truly savoring right now. What is an experience of pleasure you've had today? And as you continue on your journey, let the questions come. Just know that there is one thing you do not need to ask yourself anymore. Emily reminded me of it at the end of our conversation. So the question I get asked most is some version of am I normal? And I think that the reason people ask that is because they believe there's like a linear progression from broken to normal to perfect. That they believe that they, if they can be normal, that is the launching point toward being a perfect lover. And all of that is just a lie that we have been force-fed from the day of our birth. And instead, all of us are in a place of woundedness around like our gender and our sexuality and cultural shame and body image stuff and trauma to healing. Like we heal some part of ourselves. Like some part of you is healing and growing into your own pleasure. 
And you're going to oscillate out of that toward another place of woundedness. And then you're going to oscillate back into a place of healing around that. And the healing you've already done is going to make this next level of healing even deeper and bigger. And then you're going to oscillate down to another point of woundedness and then back to an even deeper and bigger point of healing. And it never ends. And we shouldn't think we're ever going to like achieve perfect sex. Right. What we are going to do is achieve greater and greater authenticity and bigger and bigger access to the pleasure that we are born deserving. Not Alone is produced by Valeria Inc. and Frequency Media. Thank you to everyone involved and thank you for listening. I'm Valeria Lipovetsky and always remember, you are not alone.